Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and joining us today is William Bill Hirsch, the author of Passing the Baton, the Norma, Norman Joe Hirsch story. Bill, welcome to Book Chat. Nice to meet you, Carl. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Bill, tell us a little about yourself and, and your family, and, and more importantly, why did you decide to write this book? My wife, Roberta, and I have lived in the area since 1961, and we brought up our family here. During the bringing up stage, our kids asked questions. What was Norman like? What was the Depression like? And then you'd see a movie, an old-fashioned movie. It might be a World War II movie, questions. It might deal with the Depression, once again, questions. And it might deal with FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or Adolf Hitler, questions. And I felt that the way to handle these questions was to tackle it head on write something. And I started to write something, and it became self-generating. The research needed to answer question one raised questions about other, th other subjects. And before you know it, it became a project, a five-year project, Carl. And that's the answer. That's, what, that's what's involved here. It's a little piece of history for your family and beyond. Um, I hope so. The beyond aspect is very critical to this book. Passing the baton is uh, literally what you do in a relay race. Figuratively, it's what we all do generationally. Right. And this is a book about the passing of generations. Right. Now, you were born in 1924, and your older brother, Norman Urjo, the subject of the book, was born in 1921. You both grew up in Crown Heights, New York. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, what the old neighborhood was like, and do you sort of miss that sense of community? In a sense, uh, we miss it, but you pass through those stages, I believe, and you adapt to the time you're in. That was a different, naive time. And during those years, Depression years, uh, there were events which were not always the happiest events. It was fun playing in the street. It was fun playing baseball, football, going to school. But I remember one day, uh, my dad invited Norman and me to uh, lunch. Come on in, kids. I'll have, have lunch with me in the office or nearby. Came in to have office. It was the 30s, mid-30s. We went down to a, uh, not a restaurant, the basement of a church. And there, there was a, a, a Several, there are several men standing behind a counter doling out soup. It was a soup kitchen, and it only cost a nickel for lunch, but all you got was soup and a piece of bread. That's a reminder of, that, of those days, the Depression days. When kids asked me, where'd you go yesterday, Billy? I said, well, we went to a first-class restaurant in Manhattan. In fact, it was a soup kitchen, and that was what my father could afford. That's one of the uh, non-memorable aspects of those of those years, to put it that way. The very positive aspects of those years was growing up freely, running around the streets, not concerned about cars. There weren't that many in our neighborhood, and having what you mentioned earlier, a sense of community. There was that. Um, very narrow. People didn't travel a great deal. By narrow, I mean. Narrow in the sense that we didn't have the money or the even the inclination to travel. That's the way it was. As as young boys, how were you and Joe similar and different? Joe was daylight, and I was 
midnight. Now, by that I mean uh, uh, he didn't have to be uh, loud, he didn't have to be attention-getting. He had all of the qualities that uh, enabled him to move through life, even as a boy, very nicely without putting himself forward. His kid brother, however, had less of those qualities. Hence was noisier and troublemaking because probably uh, the uh, need for attention. I guess they'd say ADD today. Uh, those were the differences. He was a skilled athlete and a very fine student. Uh, I was a fair athlete, nothing to brag about, and probably an average or sub-average student. Those are differences. And it, of course, obviously you can tell from what I'm saying that I did, did look up to him. <clears throat> Rather indestructible, I would say, he was. That is, thought, thought of. How about your parents? Where were they from and what type of work did they do and, and how did they uh, influence you and Joe? My father was an immigrant from the Pale of Settlement in Russia. And uh, in his coming to this country, he developed pneumonia in the uh, part of the ship where there was least attention to health amenities. And uh, he then came to this country, was educated well, got two degrees, was a lawyer and an accountant. My mother was born in this country. She was American. My father was someone who wanted to be American. The urge to assimilate. These, my father was a Jew from Russia and had a tremendous need to get away from that environment, to get away from the old country. Assimilation, a curious word, meaning let's have less of what we are and more of what everyone is. Uh, this, is, this was a guiding principle in his life, less so in my mother's. As Jewish kids growing up, this affected our household greatly, and we had in our household a lot of strain arising from, those, from that stress of assimilation versus the, the non-stress that my mother had of being what you are. And so, for instance, uh, in Judaic life, when a child reaches 13, he's typically bar mitzvah. That's the time when a young man becomes, quote, a man. Well, in our household, that was a subject of great difference of opinion. And I, for instance, was not bar mitzvah, nor was my brother, because of what I told you earlier. No need for it. Nonsense. Ritual. That's not part of the American world. I, to some extent, that's descriptive of my parents. Of course, it's, it's a summary, and you can't, in a capsule, tell anybody's life, and I know that. The differences between my parents' parents were substantial. My father also was a gambler. He liked the track. He liked the horses. He liked pinochle. He liked shooting crap. He had friends of that type. They were well-educated well people, professionals but they were also gamblers. So we had in our house people my mother did not like to see, but my father loved to see. 
that, let's talk a little bit more about the family now, especially before you and your brother were born during the uh, World War I years. What were the times like What and the economic conditions during that time? The uh, book opens circa 1900, the immigration story, uh, people, my father, leaving a small community near Minsk, which is now uh, the major city of, Bial of the uh, white Russia known as Belarus. The uh, early years in America were years of great hope as far as I could see, and of striving. The uh, immigrants lived their own community and uh, didn't mix very well with others. There was substantial anti-Semitism, substantial anti-Catholicism, anti-Irishism, anti-Italianism, all kinds of isms that people uh, through strength actually overcame. The uh, years before World War I were very strange politically in the sense that, for instance, uh, my family was pro-German up until about 1915 because they were so anti-Russian. The uh, Russian-German uh, dispute on that side bef before, world, before America entered World War I had immigrant Jews like my parents interested on the German side because it was the Germans who helped my father to leave Russia. And German was studied in school. And then uh, incidents occurred from time to time which changed that mood. That terrible anti-Russian mood became anti-German. That first, you might say, was the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, the ship that was sunk by the Germans in 1915. Again, that, that caused substantial deaths. The, uh, the uh, uh, shooting of Nurse Cavell. Uh, nurse Cavell was a courageous British nurse who helped uh, Belgian, who helped uh, British soldiers uh, during World War I, and she was shot by the uh, Germans as a spy. Uh, that turned American and my immigrant parents away from the German cause. And so when, when Woodrow Wilson finally accepted the idea that America should join the Allies, my father and others were very pro-Ally, pro-French-British, and my father enlisted in the Navy. He was not in combat, but he was one of the uh, sailors in World War I, and uh, he served in the Brooklyn shipyard and then the Bethlehem, New Jersey shipyard for a period of a year and a half or so in uniform. It was in the Bethlehem shipyard that he met my mother. My mother worked for her father, my grandfather, in a photography shop, which was located in the bustling, crazy Elizabeth Port shipyard. And there, Pictures of ships were needed for military reasons. Pictures of this one and that one, group pictures were taken. And my dad came into the photography shop, met my mother, and that was the beginning of their alliance. The uh, 20s, early 20s, were years of growth 
for most people and hope. And uh, the, uh, the times were extremely naive and uh, years of, uh, you might say, uh, individual development. For my father, there were also years of gambling and meeting with people who were, on the one hand, qualified to perform in court or do accounting work or do dentistry. On the other hand, horse lovers. They didn't love the horse so much as the betting on the horse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, crapshooters. Yeah. And uh, that, as I may have said earlier, it was the beginning of the uh, excursion into the other world, you might say, <laughs> for my father. Right. Those were the developing days. My grandparents had a restaurant in Manhattan, and then they had a restaurant in Brooklyn. And all of his, my grandparents' children, that is my father and his siblings, worked in the restaurant. They went to night school and worked during the day in the restaurant. And that was very typical of people who were seeking to be schooled, mm -hmm. to work during the day and go to night school. And there were night schools. <clears throat> there were night schools that were very popular because of the economic need for them. Other things caught the imagination of people in those days, and one of them was Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh, before he became <clears throat> pro-fascist and a, uh, an Aryan lover, was a wonderful American hero. And the kids in the street would say, there's Lindy, whenever a plane came by. <clears throat> I remember those days so vividly. Uh, every plane was Lindy. Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic in 33 hours alone, solo. Well, he was with someone. That is the spirit of St. Louis, his ship. That's all. Babe Ruth, Bobby Jones, Bill Tilden, <clears throat> heroes of the day. <clears throat> and Red Grange was a phantom on, on the football field. Terrific ball player. Those are the remembrances of the 20s. The stock market was going to only go one way, and that's up. It was a time of exuberance, um, which would never end, and for which everyone who had a nickel ought to be a part of. That was until October 1929. My father and others paid a price for that exuberance. And uh, we, uh, at the end of the uh, 29 period, actually 30s, early 30s, had our phone disconnected and had other signs of a changing world. Uh, Bill, let's talk a little bit about the war now, and specifically, let's put it back in a personal context. Can you tell us about the Citizens Military Training Camp uh, what it did for Joe and you, and what was it? Well, it was before World War II, actually, and the Citizens Military Training Camp was founded during the Harding administration before the New Deal. It was a way of taking kids off the streets if they wished to, it was voluntary, and giving each young man, it was only boys, 17 to 21 years of age, a one-month summer ex experience. If you went for it, you might go for four summers. First, you were a basic, then a red, then a white, then a blue. Then you'd take an examination. If you passed, you became a second lieutenant in the, in the army. Now, 
For certain people, that was acceptable. My father thought that was a great idea for several reasons. One, it was free. Secondly, it was very civic. You learned something, you became part of the American fabric. And thirdly, what in the world were, were we gonna do in the streets of Brooklyn during the summer? And so Norman went to Citizens Military Training Camp first. It was infantry in the morning, in uniform, and we used a Springfield rifle, 1903. Then in the afternoon it was sports, baseball, basketball, what have you, track. It was really wonderful. They would give us little lectures in regard to civics about the universality of citizens military training camp. Of course, it wasn't universal. There were no black kids. It was totally bigoted. You could only go if you were white, although that was never mentioned as such. That's in fact what it was. Well, putting that aside, if you can, it was a wonderful experience. I went the following year. Infantry in the morning, skirmishing. In the afternoon, sports. I was on the, on the uh, boxing team. You, you boxed in your weight class. And I was on the baseball team. Very poor pitcher, but I was a pitcher. They let everybody play. The Citizens Military Training Camp was, as far as I can see, a wonderful program. Then came Pearl Harbor and it was disbanded because the country then had to become serious. No more playing around at Boy Scouts Plus, which is what Citizens Military Training Camp really was. The uh, scene was one of where are we, where are we going, and America was a confusing place. I learned, and my brother learned, about Pearl Harbor while watching the New York Giants get beaten by the Washington Redskins. Football game on radio, listening to the radio, announcement during the game, FDR, got on the radio. FDR, telling us that the Japanese Empire had bombed Pearl Harbor and that this was a day of infamy. It was a very strong, brief commentary which changed our lives totally. Norman had been going to Brooklyn College. He was on the football team there. He had been a football star in high school and a track star in high school and a track star in college. Now realized that uh, the college days from all of him and for his co-fraternity members would probably be over shortly. And they were over shortly. And uh, he transferred to Queens, to, to City College for a short while to take certain courses that he couldn't get at Brooklyn College because he wanted to get them under his belt before he went into the service. You were going to be drafted. And so you might as well enlist. He chose the Air Force, and I chose the Air Force. We wanted to be flyers. The Air Force was in sad shape. The whole army was in sad shape, but we were moving along. We were getting there slowly. A lot of amateurs skirmishing, trying to make up for lost time. And so by the time 1942 rolled around, it was pretty clear what we all were doing, and we were visiting the local draft boards. 
and taking examinations and seeking to qualify for the for the branch we wanted. In this case, it was the Air Force, then called Air, Army Air Corps, a part of the Army. Norman and I both qualified. Strangely enough, we both ended up in navigation school, and we both became navigators. He went to the uh, Eighth Air Force, located in East Anglia, England, and I went to the 15th Air Force, located south of Naples, in uh, a village called Guattaglia, Italy. So that during the uh, World War II portion in which we were engaged, he was in England and I was in Italy. At the time of the uh, operation which brought our troops onto the shores of Europe, Europe totally in the hands of the Nazis, the German army, Norman and, and I were flying missions against ball-bearing plants, synthetic oil plants, airplane manufacturing locations, and marshalling yards in Europe, sometimes against troop emplacements as well. Uh, those were our missions typically, sometimes bridges. And those were bridges, uh, those, were, those were locations that were heavily guarded by Luftwaffe, uh, personnel. Fine. Um, although you talk about the, the end, uh, Joe's last mission, he died in 1944. He remains with you obviously today. What lessons do you take from his life, apply to yours, and how, like the title implies, how did you ensure that the baton was passed? Well, I did look up to him. He was uh, a paragon, as far as I was concerned. And as far as others were concerned, too. <clears throat> and I felt that I could stop being a damn fool and being the joker that I was and start making something of my life. Make up for what wasn't there. I went, I, I somehow qualified for college, took an examination, and they accepted me at Swarthmore College. <clears throat> I was there on the GI Bill of Rights. And then went to law school and became a lawyer. I tell you, I was influenced by the fact that I had to make up for the loss. We all have a certain obligation to the community around us and to our family and to the concept of moving along, of regeneration. I met a lovely girl, we married, we're lucky. You have three children and seven grandchildren. Uh, I think the book is a book about hope. It's a book about changing times. And one of the aspects of the changing times is the serious mood we're in today and the mood of, of great care over every aspect of our life. Let me give you an example of um, the peculiar lack of care over aspects of our life that I, we once had. I wish we could, Bill, but you know, we're just going to leave that to tantalize our audience with, and we're going to leave them all with the note of hope that you mentioned what your book is about. It's, it's a fine story. We're pleased and privileged to have it at the library. This is Carl Halliker, and you've been watching Book Chat.